Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Joshua Powell? First, I'll look at the background in this case. I'll move to the timeline of the crime. Then I'll offer my analysis. Starting with the background, Joshua Powell was born in Washington State on January 20, 1976. His family was part of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which I will refer to as LDS. His mother, Terry, filed for divorce from his father, Stephen, in 1992. It was at that time that we see she made various claims about what happened to Joshua when he was younger. There were claims that his father showed him explicit material, did not discipline him, essentially placed no boundaries on him whatsoever. Terry claimed that Joshua had killed one of his sister's gerbils, attempted suicide, and threatened her with a knife. Despite having what appears to be a terrible childhood, Joshua made it through high school and enrolled at the University of Washington in Seattle sometime around 1998. While he was a student there, he met a woman named Catherine Everett at an LDS church. Joshua and Catherine moved into an apartment together, after which Joshua became controlling and demanding. He restricted how often she could communicate with her family and what she could say when she did talk to them. Catherine made a trip to Utah to visit a friend and never returned to Seattle. She broke up with Joshua on the telephone. In November of 2000, Joshua would meet a woman named Susan Cox during a party at his apartment. She was also in the LDS church. The pair became romantically involved and they married in April of 2001. After their wedding, they lived at the residence of Joshua's father, Stephen. This was in South Hill, Washington. Stephen became infatuated with Susan. He engaged in a few different activities indicating the infatuation was becoming pronounced and obsessive. For example, he would steal her underwear from the laundry he followed her around the house while recording her with a camcorder. He spied on her using a small mirror when she was in the bathroom. He posted love songs online using a different name, and he read her journals. In 2003, Stephen could no longer hold in his romantic feelings. He confessed his love to Susan. She was surprised, disgusted, and quickly rejected him. This situation gives new meaning to the word awkward. Joshua and Susan moved to West Valley City, Utah, which is not far away from Salt Lake City. This move was in part to escape Stephen. Joshua had a number of different jobs while in Utah, including working as a real estate agent and working for a trucking company. Susan worked for Wells Fargo Investments. The couple would go on to have two sons, Charles in 2005 and Braden 
in 2007. The relationship between Joshua and Susan was becoming quite strained. Joshua would not cease contact with Stephen, his father, even though Stephen kept making advances towards Susan. Joshua became demanding, similar to what we saw before with Catherine. He refused to go to LDS church services with Susan, and Joshua started spending a lot of money. Much of the money he was spending was on items he did not need. In 2007, the couple filed for bankruptcy. They were over $200,000 in debt. In July of 2008, Susan recorded a video. She was documenting assets the couple owned in case something happened. She recorded items like jewelry and power tools. Around that same time, she wrote a will. There were a number of items in that will, but one particular statement really stood out. She wrote, If I die, it may not be an accident, even if it looks like one. This takes us to December 6, 2009. Susan and her sons are visited by a neighbor in the afternoon. The neighbor left around 5 p.m. At 8.30 p.m., a neighbor sees Joshua Powell returning to the residence in the family's minivan. He pulled into the garage. At 11.45 p.m., a neighbor hears a car alarm coming from inside the garage. All the lights in the house appear to be turned off. At 2 in the morning, now on December 7, a neighbor who was sick and unable to sleep heard a man yelling, get in the car, get in the car. Then heard a woman yell back, no, no, you're going to hurt me if I do. The neighbor looked out of her window to see a minivan driving away. All four members of the Powell family were reported missing on December 7 when Joshua and Susan did not show up for work. Police officers forced their way into the residence but did not find any of the family members. They did, however, notice something they found curious. There appeared to be a wet spot on the couch and two fans were blowing on it. Susan's wallet, purse, and ID were found in the house. The family minivan was missing. At 5 p.m. on that same day, Joshua showed up with his two sons. He had cuts on his hands. He was driving the minivan, which was the family's only vehicle. It was a Chrysler town and country. In that vehicle, the police found Susan's cell phone with the SIM card removed. They also found a shovel, tarps, a gas can, a generator, and blankets. Joshua was transported to the police station to be interviewed. He said he left the house just after midnight on December 7 to go on a camping trip with his sons. Susan was sleeping at that time. The police found it curious that Joshua would take his sons out for a camping trip in the middle of a blizzard and when he was supposed to be at work just a few hours after he departed. Joshua explained that the reason he never told his supervisor that he was missing work is that he thought it was Sunday, when in fact it was Monday. The police asked Joshua why he didn't answer his cell phone. He said he didn't have the charger and was trying to conserve the battery. The police noticed that his phone was plugged into the charger in the center console of the minivan. Investigators found a number of items of interest in Joshua's house, including life insurance policies for Susan for $1.5 million, a note written by Susan, which indicated she was afraid for her life, and traces of her blood on the floor, as well as the blood of an unknown male. The crime scene wasn't the only area where suspicious evidence would emerge. Josh's behavior after the disappearance seemed unusual as well. For example, he canceled regular appointments that Susan had with a chiropractor. He pulled his two sons from daycare, and he cashed out Susan's retirement accounts. Prior to Susan's disappearance, 
Joshua told a woman at a work party that the best place to hide a body is in an abandoned mine shaft. I guess the topic of increasing body disposal efficiency was the theme of that particular party. As I mentioned, Joshua claimed that he went on a camping trip. He said that the campsite was in a place called Simpson Springs. This is in western Utah. The police went to that location but found no evidence of the campsite that Joshua had described. Joshua's four-year-old son, Charlie, however, would tell the police that they did go on a camping trip, except Charlie said that Susan was with them. She was there on the way out, but not on the way back. A teacher would later claim that Charlie said his mother was dead. Susan's parents would later claim that Charlie drew a picture of a van with three people in it and told daycare workers mommy was in the trunk. Charlie also made some statements that were clearly false. He said they took an airplane to go camping. Joshua was, of course, a person of interest. He had initially, in theory anyway, cooperated with the police, but that started to change. He retained an attorney and then in early 2010 moved back to Washington to live in his father's residence. Joshua still had his sons with him. One of Joshua's brothers, named Michael, had disposed of a Ford Taurus under somewhat suspicious circumstances. He abandoned it at a wrecking yard in Oregon and could not seem to give the police a straight answer about why. The police found the vehicle but could not find any evidence in it connecting to Susan's disappearance. At this point in the case, we see a lot of animosity between Susan's family and Joshua and Stephen Powell. We see accusations going back and forth. A website was started, allegedly by Joshua and Stephen, which contained information about Susan's disappearance, suggesting she ran off with a journalist who vanished around the same time. Perhaps they went to Brazil. Joshua and Stephen would later claim that Susan was mentally ill. The police started developing interest in Stephen after seizing 4,500 images of Susan from Stephen's house. Many of the images appeared to be taken without Susan's knowledge. The ones that were taken with her knowledge were in Stephen's possession, when it appears as though she would not have wanted that. Stephen would later claim that he and Susan were falling in love before her disappearance. Stephen would be arrested on September 12, 2011, and charged with voyeurism and child pornography. Apparently, he had not only recorded Susan, but other people. Joshua was not arrested, but a prosecutor made it seem like Joshua may have been involved in the same types of crimes his father had allegedly committed. Joshua temporarily lost custody of his sons. He would eventually move out of Stephen's residence to comply with a court order and get them back. On February 5, 2012, a social worker had taken Charlie and Braden to a supervised visit at Joshua's house. Joshua grabbed his sons and would not permit the social worker to enter the residence. Within a few minutes, the house exploded, killing Joshua, Charlie, and Braden. It's not perfectly clear what happened, but it appears as though Joshua had attacked Charlie and Braden with a hatchet before igniting gasoline. A little over a year later, on February 11, 2013, Michael, Joshua's brother who got rid of the Ford Taurus, would jump off the roof of a parking garage in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Authorities believe that Joshua and Michael conspired to kill Susan. Stephen Powell would die on July 23, 2018, which was just over a year after his release from prison. Now moving to my analysis. I'll start by looking at Joshua's personality characteristics, and then I'll talk about the terrible situation that Susan Powell was in 
and her feelings about it. Joshua appeared to be quite narcissistic, more on the grandiose side than the vulnerable. He was low in openness to experience, low in conscientiousness, high in extroversion, low in agreeableness, and low in neuroticism. He had a number of lower-level jobs and a few jobs that, even though they were entry-level, the position could have become like a mid-level job eventually. He was very effective at interviewing. Many places offered him work, but he was almost always fired shortly after starting work. Here are a few reasons he was fired. He would make up excuses about how he couldn't do the job after saying he could do it initially, like at one job he said he couldn't lift, even though lifting was part of the job. He would criticize management and say he could run things better. He would try to find ways to get more money from the employer without doing more work, like asking for mileage when they didn't normally pay mileage. One employer designated Joshua as untrainable. Joshua believed that every job he had was beneath him. His level of education and his superior intellect meant that he deserved better. Even though some people found Joshua charming, which explains why he did well in interviews, many people found him to be odd and socially awkward, to the point where they expected him to make unusual statements, like at that work party when he talked about disposing of bodies. People didn't really think that was out of the ordinary for him. It was reported that Joshua had a number of sadomasochistic sexual fantasies starting when he was young. This is something he was embarrassed about. Joshua had to undergo a mental health assessment in connection with the custody of his sons. He was found to have narcissistic traits, paranoia, and defensiveness. If he had not brought an end to his life, he would have been subject to another assessment, one that looked at sexual attitudes. Some people believe he committed his final crime to avoid that assessment. Now moving to Susan's feelings. We see from Susan's correspondence and other documentation that she realized her marriage was in trouble. She had wanted to go to marriage counseling, but Joshua refused. He was becoming increasingly controlling, even over small amounts of money. She said it felt like a never-ending cycle, but she was too afraid to leave because of the consequences. She was afraid that she would lose her sons, and she was afraid that Joshua would kidnap or kill her. Susan strongly believed that Joshua had a mental disorder, She wondered if it was bipolar disorder because there was a history of that in his family. She really tried to figure out what was going on. She believed that his behavior was outrageous, that his opinions and beliefs were bizarre, much different than when she first met him. She held out hope that perhaps he could get treated and recover. It would appear that Susan was also influenced by the beliefs of LDS. They frown on divorce, yet she kept coming back to the idea of divorce. I think in one sense, she realized Joshua was dangerous, but she didn't know what to do. She was continually weighing the risk of staying with him against the consequences of divorce. She was ambivalent. She had strong feelings in both directions. I think Susan's feelings and reactions are a reminder that there are no easy answers in a marriage where one spouse is narcissistic and maybe psychopathic, especially when the couple has children. Susan only had choices that would result in pain. She kept holding on to the idea that Joshua would change, even as that prospect appeared increasingly unlikely. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa Vita Brevis.
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.